Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back with our extended The Spy Who Dumped Me coverage. And we have a wonderful interview for you, Cam. Who do we have joining us? Yes, we are talking to David Iserson, the producer and co-writer of The Spy Who Dumped Me, who has also quite a background in TV, writing and producing on shows like Mad Men, Mr. Robot, uh, got his start on Saturday Night Live. So there's a lot to talk about, and I think this is going to be a really interesting chat. Absolutely. So I think without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now on the show, it is the co-writer of this week's film, The Spy Who Dumped Me, Mr. David Iserson. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, doing wonderful. Uh, we've had a great week talking about this film. Cam and I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, it, oh, it was, thank you. I love the cast. I love the comedy. Uh, a good subversion of the spy tropes I found as well. And I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. But um, with all of our guests, I think the first thing is always nice to get set up. You co-wrote this film. What made you want to get into to writing? Oh, writing at all? Um, yeah. I, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know writing movies was a job that, like, one could have. Um, I mean, I think I, I understood, like, acting was a job that somebody, like, there were, there were things, there, there, were, there were elements to, I loved movies, I loved television, I, I, I think there were elements to it I understood and elements to it I didn't, and... Uh, you know, it was a little bit, you know, my adolescence was a little bit before the time when, like, there was just, like, an active screenwriting community on the internet. And so I, I think it was, like, when I um, when I would go to, I'm from New Jersey, and so when I would go into New York City as a teenager, you know, sometimes they would sell these screenplays on the street in front of, like, a park and and that was like my first realization that oh like this is what these things looked like this is <laughs> these are the things behind movies and you know and the scripts were very expensive so you know i would save my money and spend 20 dollars and and have a screenplay and then i'd be able to to read it and and i i would always do i was always doing plays and you know little like comedy things when I, growing up but i i started to gravitate more and more to write to writing because i just i thought that that was something that was just a little more exciting that i was i i found more satisfying i had a little more control over and so by the time i went to college i just sort of focused on on, on screenwriting i'm curious do you recall any of the screenplays you bought Yes, I do because I um, I I bought I bought an episode of Seinfeld, um, the episode called The Jimmy. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I bought um, I bought the uh, forgotten Quentin Tarantino anthology for Rooms um, because <laughs> it hadn't come out, and I liked Tarantino, and I was like, oh, I can I can I can I can get a. I, I can I can uh, know know about this and no one else in my high school would. And those are the ones I remember getting. And then there were a few that you could get at the library that were in like not properly formatted like a screenplay. But um, I think there was like some like maybe William Goldman scripts or something that you could get at the library. Right. Yeah. Four rooms. That is a great callback. <laughs> yeah. It's a the the Tarantino is a great little short film if I remember correctly. I mean, I'm speaking of this like this. I mean, this is you know decades ago, so I don't want to like vouch for it. But I I remembered it being very helpful, you know, because 
when you're when you're writing when you first start like the the idea of writing a full movie is is incomprehensible so writing a 10 12 page movie is is more you know uh graspable so i think there was if i recall it was a pretty clear clean short film in there that i was able to at least see how that was written and one of your first jobs was at saturday night live yeah that was my first that was my first writing job yeah yeah and you talk about how it's kind of daunting the idea of writing a movie but i'd just like to know just from starting at saturday night live how that was as kind of a training ground as a writer um yeah i i that was my that was my first professional writing job i had been um an assistant in los angeles so you know when you when you when you come to la to write you either like you get a you get a real job or you get an industry job you do something to pay the bills and there's there's arguments for both like getting a getting a job that you don't have to like take home with you mentally means that you can like kind of devote that time to writing and then working in the industry you know presumably could help you make connections that will help you get your jobs but i i went the, i went the i went the hollywood assistant route and i bounced around for a while and i worked on a few very short-lived tv shows like getting lunch and like you know doing research or whatever and through one of those i met a writer who put me in touch with um her boyfriend at the time now husband who at that point was like was running weekend update um on Saturday Night Live so I was through that I was just able to like send jokes in and you know hope for the best and I got enough jokes on the air that that eventually led to me getting a job there so that was that was my first job uh, that I got paid for and do you you know looking back have any favorite skits that you came up with for the show I I mean I, I I would say that my my tenure on SNL was uh mildly put like inauspicious but i learned a lot i was very young um i i think i i learned how to write jokes fast write jokes plentifully write jokes on the fly i think that helps a lot i mean i work now like i write drama i write comedy i write different kinds of things but i think it's always useful to be able to like put a joke in there and uh and i think that the sort of high pressure, high intensity of that job became very helpful in just being able to like write quick, fast jokes. And um, so I don't know that I, I don't know that I was like a masterful sketch writer or that I wrote anything sketch wise, particularly uh, that I, that I, that I look fondly back at, but I was able to like, yeah, put in some good weekend update jokes and just good help on other people's sketches with jokes and that you know and that sometimes like as the show was going to air and a joke was needed fast like I I was able to figure out how to do that which has been helpful for the rest of my my life very cool and I suppose that sort of covers getting into writing and also comedy which is an important part of the spy who dumped me but we haven't really tackled spy movies Mm -hmm. now was that something you particularly liked growing up was there any interest there Oh God, I did. I, 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 you know, I think one of the first things I ever remember writing, I, I, I went to this, um, this arts camp and we had, we had like, a. it's called, it's called clowning, but what it really was when we were writing sketch comedy and doing improv. And I, um, and I wrote a, like a mission impossible sketch. And I don't even really remember what, happened in it and what the comedy hook of it but I do remember like 
building a latex mask like practically <laughs> so we could do it on stage um and you know it's a lot harder to it takes a lot longer to do that than than obviously it does in those movies but like you really have to like put a layer on let it sit overnight put another layer on let it sit overnight so i i remember doing that so i loved i loved the mission impossible movies uh growing up like the, that's that's and then before that, like, I, I remember, like, the Mission Impossible TV show was in repeats when I was a kid, and I remember watching that a lot, so I, I really did, so I think that was the first, like, sort of taste of spy things that I gravitated to, and then in the rest of the genre, like, I, I, I probably connected with later. I mean, I think the first sort of serious spy movie that I can remember really loving was Three Days of the Condor and I probably saw that like late teens, early twenties. It's an excellent film. It still holds up now. Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's very funny because you know uh Redford has to be like you have to kind of believe him to be a bookish nerd, which he he you know which which he <laughs> doesn't really lean into which is fine i i totally I'd, I'd rather it be redford than be a, a bookish nerd i i always credit that film for letting him enter the scene at the beginning on an electric bicycle in the middle of new york like is that yeah. the nerdiest thing he could be doing in like 1975 it could be yeah yeah because he wears these like really big framed glasses but like he can't help but look cool in them but yeah the nerdy the nerdy bicycle is like the affectation they give him the guys in the ballroom's like he reads, but he reads. <laughs> it's a scary thing, isn't it? He I reads. just, I just read books. I just read books. Yeah. Um, I think that yeah, I want to maybe touch on things that you did in between afterwards because you've worked on shows I really love, like Mad Men, New Girl, Mr. Robot, all great stuff. But let's let's get into the Spy Who Dumped Me because sure. Where, firstly, I think the first thing to get up is where did your connection with Susanna come about? Uh, Susanna and I met at a Christmas dinner, um, I don't know, like seven years ago or so. And uh, we we had like, we had a lot of mutual friends. It was like the sort of person that I assumed I, like we, we, we've kind of missed each other crossing paths uh, throughout our time in Los Angeles. And yeah, so so we just sort of were, were at the same dinner and we got to talking and I think we were just both at the same sort of place in projects that we were like, we were, we were trying to tackle different scripts and that, that were all like kind of like in their, in their infancy. And we um, found that we just had similar tastes and similar like notions of, of, of what we liked in, in, in writing. So um, we just started hanging out Um working on our own stuff, but like doing study dates, like, um, you know, just, just meeting at a coffee shop and working on our own stuff and talking through that. And, um, eventually that led to us talking about writing something together. And, um, what became Spider Dummy was like the result of like a week of, you know, of, of no bad ideas kind of brainstorming until we sort of like, landed on on this idea as the thing we wanted to do and what was sort of the key that unlocked what the movie was because there's a lot of spy comedies out there what were you kind of realizing that you could bring to the table that felt different yeah you know i i think i um what 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 mattered to us was 
that we were trying to place, you know, I think, I think there are two versions of kind of doing a comedic spy movie, or maybe there's multiple, but like off the top of my head, there is the, there, there is just a, a person who is a, is a likely person in a spy movie falling into a rather like absurd situation, or there are people unlikely to be in a spy movie that is falling into a fairly straight spy movie, but they are the ones who are the unusual pieces. And I think what felt fun about it was taking two characters who we felt connected to, who felt closer to us and placing them in you know, the heightened world of spy movies, which we, which we all, we both enjoyed. So I, I think it, what, what helped the writing process was whenever we would find ourselves at a place, we would be like, well, what would we do in this situation? And obviously the first answer would be die. Like we would always die, <laughs> but, um, but, but, um, you know, like, like there was, yeah. I mean, there's a moment in there where they, get in a car and realize it's 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 stick shift and they don't know it as it drives stick shift that was just from i mean Susanna does know how to drive stick shift she we were just, but i i do not so i was i i, I um yeah it, it it just was simply placing myself at like running into a car in a european city which was invariably going to be manual and not knowing how to do it and that was going to you know mean that our characters were going to just flail in different ways than somebody with any training and uh and any background in that world. And what was your process like with Susanna for working on the screenplay? Um, we met every morning and um, we, uh, we, we had had a very loose outline and we wrote it very, very fast. It was a very, um, but we wrote it together and we passed the computer back and forth. Um, it was a very... Uh, unusual situation for both of us. And, you know, it, 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 it went very, very fast. Um, I think that first draft came like a month after we just had the initial idea and then we made the movie almost exactly a year after that. So it, it's, it's sort of this very unlikely situation that never actually normally happens. Normally things are a huge slog. Everything is slow. It takes years and years, but this was us, yeah, us just very quickly, very actively working together and and getting getting through this. And um, it, yeah, it was it was kind of a, a lovely a lovely month of of like it, that just made us laugh and we enjoyed ourselves. And was the idea always that she would direct the film, or did that come later in the process? The idea was that I think very early in the process we were we we felt like why not just say that why not just 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 go in forcefully and say she would direct it and if we received any pushback then we would you know if some if somebody was like we'll make this movie but it's got to be with with this person then we would kind of uh uh talk about that then but we never reached we never had that resistance so it was it was very helpful and fortunate for us and one thing I was listening to an interview uh, with you earlier today, and just talking about sort of the process of getting things made and script writing and pitching pilots and things like that. And you talked about, and you mentioned just there, sort of quick turnaround from that first draft to basically completing uh, filming, or more or less over a year later. What do you think about what this script that really made it go so quickly? Um, you know, it's uh, 
it really just comes, it, often it just kind of comes down to, um, you know, actors and, and availability and timing. And, um, you know, I have a ton of things that are moving achingly slow to get to the same point. And I, I, I think it ultimately comes down to like, yeah, comes, there are, there are very, um, few ways of getting a movie made sometimes and, and often it all it comes down to your stars and so yeah it getting an actor to read a script getting an actor to agree to do a script is sometimes an, just just a painfully paint dryingly slow process and this just happened to happen quickly we had two actresses who were both available and um wanted to do something at that time and we were able to scramble and move fast we talked to some studios and places who weren't willing to put up the money to move as quickly as we needed to move so we, we that was partially how we chose um our partner in Lionsgate because they, they were willing to move that fast so it's it's uh it sort of is comes down to I think with anything um you know I, I never want to be the person who slows it down. And I want to, like, I never want to be the person who's like, well, let's just take a step back and assess. Like I, I if, if anyone is opening a door for me, I want to run into it as quickly as possible. So it, with this, it just sort of happened that quickly. And we just kind of didn't stop for breath to, to question that. And uh, it's, yeah, a rarefied situation that is not duplicated. <laughs> I mean, everything else I've, I've been working on lately um, some of which are, are, are spy related. Um, yeah, have just been like, um, snail paced, like at least since the pandemic began, just, just the whole process has been very dragged out. And, you know, you talked about the two leads and I, I'd read that Kate McKinnon was always who you wanted in the movie. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Kate, Kate McKinnon went to, uh, Columbia University with Susanna. I don't think they fully knew each other that well, but they, they knew each other. And then Kate had a small part in Susanna's first, um, uh, indie film, uh, life partners. And so they knew each other. So it was an easier call to get Kate. So we, we were able to get Kate earlier in the process. And how did uh, Mila Kunis kind of enter the picture? You know, it was, um, there, there was just a very small list of, of actresses who could help us you know, who, who the studio could, would make the movie with. Um, she was coming off of bad moms. Uh, we were told she wasn't available. So she, we, we didn't go to her first. Um, but then um, I think Susanna has the same lawyer as she does. So the lawyer said like, you know, I think she might be available. So then we just, we just kind of went to her and it, and it moved quickly from there. And when they join the project, are there any ideas they're bringing? Like, cause when they're looking at the screenplay, are there things that they'd like to play or, elements that they'd like to see punched up or anything like that um i think i don't recall that exactly but it's i i think we went into it writing it trying to make the sort of things that they were doing be be appealing to actors like wouldn't it be fun to go to europe and make a movie wouldn't it be fun to do a car chase and 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 uh you know, and, and that, that was part of like the sell to them. I, I think that what changed is, you know, you, you, you end up just 
getting to know the actors and kind of getting to know where their sweet spots are and then sort of tailoring the part a little bit to them and to their voice. And some of that just happens in the rehearsal process. I don't remember anything particular, but I I know that it's just um it 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 adjusted itself over time. We would we would try to rehearse the scenes for the week, like the weekend before, and we would sort of make changes accordingly. And I'd read, I think it was an interview with Susanna, said that they you you guys really want to embrace Kate McKinnon's improv background. So that just raised questions for me about when you're writing the screenplay and all of the dialogue for her character, is there a certain sense that this is, you, you want to write something that is appealing and funny to her to bring her in, but at the same time, you're going to give her opportunities to riff as well. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I think that not to, uh, not just not, not to push back on Susanna. Like I think he, if, if I'm remembering most of it, right it's not exactly that she loved improv and she didn't really necessarily riff on camera but she liked to have options of jokes that she had with her Mm -hmm. so um you know we would have a joke in the script and then we would have a few alternatives which um which which she would also kind of have with her and and we sort of found the best, the best sort of joke through there. And um, so, yeah, we, we had a, we had a joke. We would have a joke we liked in the script, but like we were, we were totally, you know, best idea wins and it didn't necessarily have to come from us. It didn't necessarily have to come from Kate. It could come from anybody, you know, but we would try a bunch of different jokes and, and uh, eventually land on the one that we thought was funniest. So a very healthy collaborative process really then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of uh, casting, I, I remember I tweeted out we were watching this film a few weeks ago, and the reaction I got from Sam Hewen Vans was uh, remarkable. Oh, the reaction from Sam Hewen, yes, yes. Uh, uh, I, I think I'm still getting mentions from that tweet, from that very tweet. So uh, just a little bit maybe more about casting. Justin Theroux as well has definitely a, a very strong fan base online. Mm-hmm. Um, just the casting process past the two leads, obviously those were the sort of key for getting it picked up and moving, but then the casting process after that, how did you find Sam, Justin, that sort of stuff? Um, Sam, I think, I, I think it was, um, you know, it was through, through our, our, our agency. I think, I think he may have, might've been represented there. I, I think in the original, original drafts, that character was a little bit more, um, yeah, a little, a little bit more of an analyst, a little bit more bookish, um, not, not necessarily an action hero type. Um, and Sam was just great. I mean, we, 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 uh, I, um, embarrassingly had not, not seen Outlander. So I didn't kind of know the work that made his fans froth, but, um, <laughs> but so, so I just sort of like, we we he had just sort of auditioned very purely and and he and he just was great and and he so kind of took to he was such a good action performer and so such a good stunt performer and um it really gave us a lot of freedom to make those sequences um much more um athletic and uh and, and visceral than they were because he he was so good at it and uh he's just a very 
sweet person and uh and just like kind of a pleasure to to work with um justin um i don't know i think justin had sort of somehow gotten a hold of the script and and just and just let us know he was interested and and which was great because we 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 hadn't really done the process we hadn't really even started the process of looking for somebody to play this role and justin is both like feels like a believable spy and and also like you know we knew he was funny i mean he he's a he's a screenwriter as well so um it 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 was just sort of like a a happy accident that fell in our lap and he was he was also just just great to have around and i would love to know about the action which you mentioned there because the action in this movie is pretty fantastic which took me by surprise because i watch a lot of action comedies and they frequently fall more on the comedy than the action in terms of just the quality level and mm -hmm. i would just like to know from you about finding that balance between the comedy action in this film you know, I think, I think it was a very, it was an intentional decision early on that like we, and, and, and I, and I, and admittedly, I think that's probably when the movie is not for everyone where it falters. Cause I think, I think people tend to like, um, a movie to be what they think it's going to be. So if it is, if, if, if they believe they're watching just a, a action comedy, that the action feels more soft and, and more comedic. And I think we we wanted to, you know, feel like the characters were in real danger. We thought that would be more interesting. We thought that would be cooler. And um I I I just just more entertaining. And so and so um uh we you know we got we got one of the best stunt coordinators. We got Gary Powell, who came from the James Bond world, and um, he and Susanna just have this wonderful rapport. And he um, was the second unit director, and he just brought so much to the table as far as like all of these things that he wanted to try and that he wanted to do. And and um, we were just so lucky to have him. And so um, I we we just didn't want the comedy to come from like you know silly action we we wanted we wanted the comedy to come from like the characters feeling that they were really living in this absolute heightened action-packed world and uh and so yeah we just wanted to lean into it and i thought it was really fun to just just be there just to watch car chases done watch the um that very complicated um cafe scene that that happens you know um you know in, in early in the second act um i i think that's just uh yeah that, that that was stuff that i'd never experienced before and never sort of been a part of and it was just a lot of fun to just do it, it's funny in sort of the the world of connective tissue i'm not sure if this has been released by the time this episode comes out but we've spoken to gary powell and he oh fantastic he spoke a lot about this film and really enjoying making it because it's one of his early times of being a second unit director and stunt coordinator and being able to sort of combine those two things. And he really enjoyed the project. And yeah, we had a good chat about it. He had a good time. Yeah, I, yeah, I love him and yeah, we, we would work with him forever. Yeah. Um, the only other person I want to talk about in terms of casting before I, I stray off into something else is Gillian Anderson. What a coup. What a coup. 
Just, just fantastic. To, just fantastic to have her. Was that uh, late, sort of getting the project, or was she signed on quite early? And, and what was it like to work with her? I think it was. I think it was pretty early. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Yeah, that part's all a blur. But it was. It was definitely who we had in mind when we wrote it. And Kate McKinnon, particularly, was a big Gillian Anderson fan. And uh, and so I think early on in the process. We were we were in London for casting, and that's where she lives. And we had a lovely coffee with her. And um, I don't know, it was just, it, you know, she wasn't there that many days, but so it was like it all feels like a blur. But it was, yeah, it was just just sort of a dream. It was all somebody that we like, we, we all we all we all loved, and you know, plays can, can play that sort of like stern, judgmental. Um, woman in her sleep and, and and do it epically and so it was just it, it was it was fantastic to uh to to have her there I I think like um yeah I I, I remember one day um when she was still in there we were all we were all going to like some we shot this in Budapest and we were going to some famous gelato place or Instagrammable gelato place in, in, in Budapest. And, and we asked her to join us. And, and then uh, she said she would. And then apparently um, somebody, so, some, some very important person from like the Russian government was staying at the hotel and then the security had blocked her exit. So I don't know if that was an excuse or not, but for, a, for <laughs> one minute, we thought that Jillian Anderson was meeting us for gelato. Oh, well, sequel maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would like to know just another character, Ivana Sokno's um, killer gymnast character. Scott and I talk about spy movies every single week. We have encountered so many villains, so many unmemorable villains. I would like to know the creation of this character, working with Ivana, and realizing something that I think feels very unique and very memorable. Um, Ivana's the absolute best. I think she's going to be a giant movie star. Um, And yeah, I think I think we were we were we're we're thinking about I don't exactly remember where the origin of the character was, but we kind of there was just something that we loved about those sort of like terrifying high fashion models that shave off their eyebrows and you know wear this <laughs> absolute avant-garde runway stuff that that is is fully impractical and just there's there's something so cold and terrifying about that. And um yeah, and and we saw a bunch of people for it, but like Ivana just felt exactly right, and she is um, Ukrainian, and um, but like also is just like the loveliest, sweetest person in the world. So you know, watching her just sort of transform into like an ice cold, ruthless, evil, you know, nightmare person is uh, was fascinating to watch. But yeah, she's she's great. And I thought building towards the Cirque du Soleil battle between her and Kate McFinnan, genius concept, and I did not see it coming. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, that was that was really fun to, yeah, we built that whole circus in some sort of weird Hungarian stadium and uh, or arena and uh, and had a ton of stunt people. It was really it was really fun to do. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting 
much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Saddle up, partner, because we're taking a trip into the Wild West with John Wayne and Dean Martin for 1959's Rio Bravo. Yeehaw! And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Now, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talk about doing that first draft, pitching it, you get the leads, you get the actors, and now you're basically shooting it at this point. Mm-hmm. How has the script evolved from what you first had to what we ended up on, on screen in the end? What, what changes have been made? Was there any big scenes that were cut out and anything like that? There were a few scenes that were cut that, that probably made sense to be cut. I think there was just like, everything comes like, I think when you're constructing a, a movie you know, a spy movie, a movie that has a lot that, that is sort of built around this thing leads to this thing, leads to this thing, this thing discovers this clue, discovers this clue. Like, you know, there's, it's always sort of a delicate little bit of surgery figuring out when you cut something out and uh, do the things still connect? And what is the, um, what, 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 what is the answer there? I think, I think there was a, um, there was a scene in like, an Apple store at one point because like they had this, they had this um, thumb drive and they wanted to figure out, well, you know, who, wh- where to go, but you know, to the genius bar. And th- there was something that felt extraneous about that. So we, we were able to cut that and just sort of make, make the next step feel okay. And, um, but otherwise I think the scenes stayed pretty close to what it was in the script. I mean, I think the action transformed as we were collaborating more with Gary Powell and you know there would be times when he would say you know this nobody would die this way or this could not this couldn't be a weapon but this could be a weapon and so uh so so we were very we would change a lot there and then I think that um as far as like the dialogue was concerned um you know there were just more what I would call joke jokes in the in the script you know things that were not necessarily character driven things that were you know just a hard joke and in practice there were just times when that took us away from I, we felt it was funnier to have real legitimate reactions to the terror of what they were going through than it would be for them to like say a a written a, a more written like you look like a blah 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 blah, blah kind of joke and so a lot of those kind of went to the wayside in the interest of like what we thought was just going to land better. And one of the things I thought was really refreshing in this movie was with your two leads, you never introduce any sort of artificial conflict to split them apart, you know, halfway through the movie or something like that, or in that towards the third act, which is something that is so common. I would just like to know in terms of the writing process, was there concerns about maintaining like a dramatic momentum without those sorts of elements? What were the challenges of pulling that off? 
Yeah, it was it was really that was really important to Susanna that um, we didn't have there's a there's a there's a term of art in in writers room called schmuck bait and um, schmuck bait is like only a schmuck would believe that this would happen you know it's you know it's like you know uh, you know someone you know Sam Malone quits the quits the job at Cheers like no we know he's yeah. going to be back at Cheers you know it's uh, I don't know that that actually happened in Cheers Cheers was a better show than than, than schmuck bait but um, but that is. It's, it, it felt like so many things were happening to these characters, so many scary heightened things were happening to them that at that moment that they would be, you know, that the, the real thing was that they would be, that, they, that their friendship would fall apart. We just didn't want to do that. And we felt that that wasn't true. And we felt that that was a sort of... It, it, you know, a movie moment as opposed to like some, like as, as much as like this, what this is a comedy and it is a heightened world. We wanted the friendship to feel true throughout. And we never thought that it would feel true for the characters to break up and come back together. And so we were very firm that that was not what was going to happen. This was going to be just two people who loved each other and support each other and had each other's back. And that was going to be, through line throughout the movie and i thought you did a really good job as well the two of you you and susanna with introducing a romance between the mila character and the you know the sam hewan character that is effective but it never comes between the friendship you know the movie ends with the two friends walking away so i thought that the way you pulled that off was very well done but i would just like to know in terms of writing that in and making it connect with an audience as well as kind of deliver a little bit of the expectations while still maintaining the friendship. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the love story felt important to important that, you know, uh, I, I think for, for, um, for Mila's arc, for Audrey's arc, that, that, that happens at the end, but um, this really is a love story between the two friends. And so ending with them and and you know, understanding that that you know she 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 may stay with uh with 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 Sam and she may not, and um that's not really what the movie cares as much about. It's 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 that these two friends are going forward, and that it, yeah, it, um in it certainly in Susanna's work um there's always a through line of of female friendship, and um and so more than anything that that that's that's just the love story that mattered most to us and that we wanted to you know not not have the not be overwhelmed by like and the, then she meets a man mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's not so much a question as a comment but we spoke about it in our review earlier this week and i just i tip my hat if i was wearing one to both of you just the rapport between the two leads is incredible in this film it really carries you through it is unique almost in films nowadays to see such a strong rapport carry through without any of these weird obstacles that people throw in the way so just credit to the writing there i think you both did a wonderful job oh thank you so much um but sort of taking that into the context of actually filming it because one thing when we've had screenwriters on, on the show in the past it seems to be a lot of the case where you write the script and hand it off and then it gets shot Mm -hmm. because there was a partnership there and i've seen you on set videos of you on set helping out you even have a guest spot in the film you're in the in the bar i am yeah um um but what was that like sort of seeing that your script come to life being on set oh it was it was it was fantastic like i 
No, I came from TV, working mostly in TV and it used to be in TV when you wrote a script, you, you were on set. It's not really like that anymore. So there's there's a real, um, so a lot of writers who just, yeah, who who don't, you know, who, who never really get to experience that. And, um, and then, you know, because my writing partner was directing it and, you know, we were in collaboration and in conversation the whole time. Um, it was, it was, it was great. It was like a dream. It was like, it was like going away to like this magical summer camp. Like, cause we, you know, cause we, we moved to, we moved to Budapest and, and um, you know, built these sets and built these places and all, all were like, you know, in it together. And um, yeah, it was, it was a real magical experience, you know, where everybody had a great time together and, and it was like a true adventure. And I mean, when we set out writing this movie, even that was like a conversation of like, where would we want to go? Where would we want to do this? And, uh, and, and so to actually live it and experience it, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it is a rarity for writers and it was a lot of fun for me. You uh, you mentioned the story about almost having gelato with Julian Anderson, which is of course that that's an all timer. But is there any sure. other sort of stories you remember from from the set from the production? Um, I let's see. Um, I remember like when we were in um when we were in Budapest for which we shot most of the movie in. I mean, they could not care less that there was a movie shooting there that there were celebrities there there was nothing no activity around there no like weird bystanders but once we started doing a few days we did a few days in berlin and a few days in vienna um uh there was uh yeah there, there was a lot more activity and um you know we really we shot like one scene outside scene in berlin and uh i just i i, I don't i don't know what the origin of it was but i do know a guy like i know we had to get like real big security guys and guards and some guy tried to like uh tried to break a, break into set so so the, i mean i don't think it's a, yeah it's not not a fabulous anecdote but like there's it, it it got more chaotic as we started uh moving around the world um and what else what other things were we able to do um yeah, it was it was just it was it was a it was a fun time with a group of people, great group of people. I don't remember any. Yeah, I, maybe if you prompted me for other, you know, more specifically, I could try to remember more anecdotes. Oh, I do remember when we did the car chase. Um, it was, uh, you know, we, we did the car chase practically, which is, um, you know, no green screen, nothing like that, in in a way that rarely do people do that anymore. And um, so like there was a stunt driver on the roof of the car and um, we can only kind of do it a few minutes at a time. And it was like an unprecedented hot day and couldn't really have like air conditioning on in the van. And there, there was all of these sort of pieces. So I just remember it being like a brutal task that I... I'm shocked like came together because it was, yeah, it was, it was a drenchingly sweaty time to, to be like following a car in a car chase and trying to make a movie. And I would just like to know this movie really, I think understands spy movies. Well captures the tropes very well. 
was there ever a point where you were leaning towards more overt nods to specific spy movies or was it always more of a general sense of that kind of you know genre I think yeah I think it was a it was a general sense I I uh, admittedly Suzanne and I don't love the title of this movie and it was our fault because it's our we 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 chose it we thought we would be able to change it and we didn't like we chose it to sell the script we thought we'd be able to change it but the the title I think makes it seem like it's a spoof of spy movies and it wasn't really our intention to be a spoof of spy movies uh although like we were sort of embracing certain kinds of like um uh, you know conventions of some like mission impossible sort of things or even or born sort of things at, at, at times like we, we were nodding to at least in the action setup of of it but we weren't really trying to make a meta commentary on spy movies apart from the characters understanding that those movies exist and that is like their basis of understanding what is what they're actually experiencing um but yeah i mean i think i think if there is a fair knock to make on the movie at least how people what people thought it was going to be versus what it was going to be. I think, I think it like probably seemed like it was going to be more of a nod and reference and, and uh spoofy kind of movie about um, spy movies. And, and I think that um, it wasn't exactly, that wasn't exactly the movie we were intending on making. Well, that begs the follow-up question. What what was your proposed alternate title? Oh well, nothing. I mean, we've had lists of them, and we didn't have a good one. So I think mm. I think that's the, I think that's the problem um, is that we didn't we didn't present a great a great alt. Um, I, I mean, I have lists and lists of them. Um, it's funny. I I, I do. Susanna ha- and I have a a show, um, a nineteen seventies set. Um, Moscow spy show about about two women that's that's more grounded than um than this movie and that show could have been yeah that the title of that show could have been the title of this show and that show's called ponies which is a reference to um people of no interest um in in CIA vernacular and so eh, ponies could have worked for his bio me, but right now, yes, but ponies is the the name of our our uh, spy follow up television show. I suppose the one of the last questions I have, and I'll throw it to you, Cam, afterwards. But you know, David, looking back on the process and getting this film made, what was maybe your favorite moment from the production? Um, you know, I my favorite moment was um, we got to watching the stunt rehearsals for the cafe scene they built the cafe like out of cardboard boxes um in the basement of our production office and they would rehearse that you know every day and watching that happen was just you know it's 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 one of those sort of like moments like you know the magic of movie making you would see in other movies you would you know see when peewee herman gets into the back lot and peewee's big adventure like there was something about that that was like oh my god this is like this is what movies look like getting made that that felt very magical to me and i'm curious you know the movie came out a few years ago 
um, you know, performed how it performed. I'm just curious if you've noticed over time any sort of difference in responses to it. You know, yeah, I I, I think that um, it's. I think there was an intention when we were when we were making a movie, particularly in leaning into the violence, that this would kind of appeal to this would be a good date movie. It would appeal to the appeal to men. It would appeal to women. I think in reality, it didn't doesn't appeal to men as much, and um, that's just like being frank. So I think I think, but I think young women. Yeah, they they approach me and Susanna all the time and tell us, you know, how, you know, that they've found the movie and what it sort of means to them. And um, and then and that's been great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, a lot of like dudes our age telling me it's like shit. <laughs> so that, that also happens fine. That happens often as well. But um I I think yeah I think I think it has connected more and more with with younger women and uh, and that's been really nice. If it means anything to you, and it may not, but we have been talking about spy movies for years. We're probably about as professional we're talking about spy movies as it might get, and we both really liked it. So. I really I really really appreciate that, and I'm I'm also being comically self deprecating about talking <laughs> about the, uh, the, the 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 random the random. Um, 30, 30 something dude who does not like my movie, but it's, it's, um, it's totally, totally, uh, it, it's totally fine by me, but yeah, I, I've, I've been really hardened by, yeah, by, by women, young women who've, who've embraced this movie and um, yeah. And I, I hope it just, you know, continues to sort of get seen. And then the other, the other interesting reaction was that like, it's off camera, but I have a poster of the movie in my in this office that I'm talking to you now. But that I was on, um, I was on like my Zoom therapy appointment with my therapist, and she told me that she and her husband watched that movie a lot before she knew I wrote it, which was, which was, um, <laughs> which was an odd, uh, a good feeling, I think, but an odd feeling. What well, they they said you said they watched it more than once. They yeah, they wa- they'd watched it more than once. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, I think both Scott and I, um, when we watched it, we were both really surprised by it. Mm. And it really was not the movie that I thought it was going to be. Did you find it just, I mean, you obviously aren't in charge of marketing, but was it a tough movie to market to get across exactly what it was? Yeah, I think so. I, I didn't think so. I had never really experienced marketing a movie at a time at the time. So I do think, yes. So I, I, I think that if we had to do it all over again, I think there is a kind of a different way to market it perhaps. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it was a little bit, I, I don't think people quite knew what the movie was when they were going to see it. And I think people who saw it a little bit blinder or, or, or colder, like not having seen a trailer or not having seen a poster. Um, I think people who, maybe saw it in um, some countries in Europe where it was not called the spy who dumped me, where it was called bad spies might have, uh, you know, might, might have been a little bit more generous in what they thought it was going to be before they saw it. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I think, and I think that's where the sort of like long tail of like, you know, 
people hopefully will discover it over years and stuff that it becomes, yeah, that it may transcend marketing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to market a movie. That's not mm-hmm. a skill I, I have. So I, I, I think that in retrospect, because I think it was a little bit misunderstood perhaps at the time of like what the movie was going to be, then I, it probably should have been marketed different. I just don't know exactly how that would have, would have been. Right. Well, I think coming out of The Spy Who Dumped Me and just sort of... the, the One of the questions I like to ask guests on the show, and it's quite an important one because I, I think it's, it's good to get your work out there, is aside from that film and looking at your filmography and things that you've made and produced, what's um, something you think maybe doesn't get enough love that people should check out? Um, well, I wrote a novel, um, I mean, at this point, 10 years ago, called Firecracker that is uh, you know, a labor of love of mine um, that... Yeah, it's sort of um, still available, and I, 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 I'm, I love it. And you know, if, if uh, it's, you know, more unsung than you know I would want it to be. So yeah, you know, if anyone wants to just check out a, a funny young adult um, from a female, a funny female point of view, um, yeah, Firecracker. We'll put a link to it in the show notes below if you want to check it out, folks. It'll be down there and. I noticed you've got a another thing in production at the moment with Susanna. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have some sort of spy yes. vibe to it. Yeah. Uh, the mentor. What can you tell us about it? Um, uh, it's still still sort of in pre pre process, but yes, that is a um, it has a spy element to it. It is it is you know is not as much overtly a comedy. It. And it is not about unlikely people in a spy world. It is about two capable people, but it's about two generations. So it's about, um, you know, in sort of um, in uh, international um, uh, MI5 kind of situation, it is about a younger, a younger female um officer and an older female officer and is sort of trying to tackle those gen- sort of generational divides in workplaces but that in a um in the world of trying to track down in um a uh international assassin fugitive and uh how's the production going with that one it's still sort of being written at this point how what's the process we're still still uh, it's 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 written we're just we're just we're out to actors so we're we're just mm. we're just waiting to waiting to hear back okay cool and i had a quick question mad men related that came mm-hmm. in from a friend of the show tyler orton and he is an absolute obsessive over this show and he really enjoyed your episode uh the runaways thank you and he, he would like to know just about writing for that show when like the reputation was that Matt Weiner, the showrunner, was very heavy on extensive rewrites, mm-hmm. and just the process of realizing your story. Um, well, I think when you're writing on a staff of a TV show, um, it is not your show. I think you're not. Um, I don't think it is your story. It is not my story. Like I'm there to uh, make the showrunner's job easier and. Um, yeah, Matt rewrote oh, the scripts extensively, and I've worked on other shows where the showrunner also rewrites extensively, but isn't as good a writer as Matt Weiner is. So, um, 
yes, my my script was rewritten quite a bit, but also some of it stayed. And um, also, he's a good writer, so I was perfectly happy to have my name on there. Um, and you know, that was a fun experience, a weird experience. I, I just was on the show in the last season, so it wasn't uh, so. You know that there was so I was just sort of coming in as like the the person who'd just been a fan of that show the whole run and uh and so it was kind of it was just fascinating to to see it all happen well Dave I'm conscious of your time so we have one final question for you that everyone has been asked has been on the show spy alumni James Bond alumni everyone mm-hmm. and you may have already telegraphed the answer but what is your favorite spy movie of all time Okay. Um, so I do. I think. All right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna remind myself. Um, all right. Of of my favorite Mission Impossible movie because I, I I ranked them on my letterboxed, but I've forgotten. Uh, I think my favorite is Fallout because I like my my wife and I like watched them all in order last year. So. Um, um so yeah fallout is my favorite mission impossible movie and mission impossible is probably my favorite spy franchise but i do love the Bourne movies um and um i think supremacy is my favorite of that one and then like you know love three days of the condor and i love comedy wise burn after reading um but i'll just put i'm gonna put i'll put fallout as my number one now very nice. I think that's the first time we've had Fallout as the answer. It's a wonderful choice. And uh, I would say it's, it's a shame that the Spy Who Dumped Me didn't have a, a face mask pull off at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been real fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but David, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sort of taking us on the journey of the Spy Who Dumped Me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. David Eisen. And I want to thank David for taking the time to speak with us. Cam, what did you think? This is a really interesting interview because when we talked about The Spy Who Dumped Me, I said that this was, you know, among the movies we've tackled, one of the most surprising because it was not the movie I expected going Mm -hmm. in. And I was really interested to hear him talk about just the collaborative process between him and Susanna Fogel of creating this, I think, really interesting spy comedy. And spy comedy, that's something we tackle a lot. A lot of them aren't that interesting. It's one that's trying some different things. And I think he did a really good job at shining a light exactly as to how him and Susanna achieved this. And it was lovely to hear that it was such such a collaborative process between them both. Mm-hmm. You, you hear a lot of the times, and I mentioned it in the interview, screenwriters get hired, they do their job, they're paid, and they move on. They don't get to do stuff on set. But, you know, uh, David was an exec producer on the film. He was helping out on set, probably doing rewrites on set as well, helping out with Kate McKinnon's sort of jokes that she liked to do that we talked about. And I, I think that camaraderie between the two of them that rapport shines through in Mila Kunis's character and Kate McKinnon's sort of connection that they share. It also comes across as, you know, a group of people that are creating something without ego getting in the way. Mm-hmm. People that are open to listening to other ideas. And as he said in the interview, choosing the best idea and moving forward with that. Unlike the show. Exactly. I mean, I have been bowing down to you, Scott, since day one. Mm. well as you should as as you should <laughs> that's why we talk about condor man so much <laughs> exactly i'm the mila kunis of this exactly yes yeah well i think one of the things i want to sort of sort of dive into in the, the discussion is 
the comedy because I think it's one of the things that is not overplayed and I think it was very stylishly done, I want to say, that that's the right word for it, but I think it was very cleverly done. It wasn't too yuck yuck. And they and, and David was saying about like, they wrote a lot of jokes for the sake of having jokes and by the end a lot of that sort of was excised in the film. And I think that's to the film's benefit because much as we can talk about the marketing not being quite right, maybe the name not being quite right and the the image of what the film could be in people's minds, I think when you actually get there with no expectation, it's a really funny film. Well, and like the humor feels grounded with within the characters. It's mm-hmm. not a trying to just be like a spoof of spy movies of introduce the tropes and then bat them down. It's not doing that. It's also not tossing the characters into a situation and having them act outlandishly ridiculous. It's not a Condor Man, for example. You know, like they aren't behaving like Michael Crawford in Condor Man, flopping around on the ground with a machine gun. It's fastest it- cane in the West. <laughs> it's playing it as two admittedly quirky characters being thrown in a situation they're not prepared for and reacting as they would in life. And I think that's where a lot of the humor comes from. And, you know, he's citing like, you know, elements like the car chase or just the various adventures they have throughout and how they managed to navigate it just by being their quirky selves and letting that be funny. Mm. I mean, I, I think in terms of finding a spy movie that closely channels us and what we would be like caught up in the action, this is probably the closest we've had so far. I mean, you could, again, cite Condor Man. Uh, I, I guess I'm Condor Man in that one. Um, I tend to think Cloak and Dagger and that you're Jack Flack, which means you're my imaginary friend and this podcast has been a one-man operation since day one. It's all been a smokescreen, folks. Uh, Cam is just really good at British accents. <laughs> well, we know that's not true. <laughs> I know that is definitely not true. But um, Cam, what's something you wanted to sort of highlight? Um, I mean, I thought the story about, you know, getting the two leads on board was definitely interesting. But it was actually Ivana Sokno's character, um, the killer gymnast, that I was really interested in hearing him talk about creating that character. The specificity of them looking at these kind of like European models with no eyebrows and thinking that that was kind of unsettling, bringing that to the character. Because as I said in the interview, Scott, you and I talk about spy movies, even within the James Bond universe, where that's a franchise famed for its henchmen slash henchwoman. There are a lot of forgettable ones. Sometimes they try for something, they don't hit a home run. And yet like this one in a movie that could be, you know, easily dismissed as just kind of a silly, fun comedy creates a villain character that's really memorable like do you remember that mr hinks has like silver nails i was gonna mention mr hinks but i was like well we haven't talked about specter yet so i don't want to (laughs) like start attacking that character too soon but that's a that's a great example yeah yeah oh you just you remember dave batista but you don't remember that or elvis oh the hair guy see like that went out of my head yeah yeah. There you go. Um, no, I, I, and I agree. I think it was a very memorable character and very well done. And, and I'm glad that they had the time to create their vision and stuck to it a lot. Like it wasn't like it was a, a vision that was muddled by studios. It really feels like they had a, an idea, a concept. They built it from the ground up. I think putting Susanna at the top and saying she's going to direct was a masterstroke because I think it really worked for this film. And I'm glad that sort of that unit saw the film through production it was really sort of a well auto driven is that kind of what this would be in that sense to a degree yeah yeah i think that applies 
I mean, yes, it's her vision. She and they, their vision. They took it through to the end. Yeah. No, I think that applies. Yeah, I, I think that will always help a film. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe sometimes in the Netflix era, you see that that can go wrong when an auteur has a complete <laughs> blank check and we get some very disastrous overlong movies. But I think in this case, like, yes, that is exactly, you know, what works for us for the movie. It may not have helped the movie at the box office, which we talked about in the interview, that maybe it was a case of just a difficult movie to market or that the audience that they should have been targeting didn't show up or didn't know that movie was for them. That's all irrelevant now. The movie's long out of theaters. It's a movie I think people should check out now. But just the idea that they went for a specific vision, stuck to it, and delivered something interesting, I think is important. Absolutely. And and I also, I felt bad that Gillian Anderson said she was going to go for Gelotto and then didn't go. I, I, that's a That's a lifelong sort of missed opportunity there. Well, you do the same thing to me every summer in Las Vegas. That's true. That's true. What what flavor of gelato do you think Gillian Anderson would have gone for? Oh, that is an excellent question. Hmm. I don't, do you have a guess? I don't know what her uh, tastes would lead towards. I get the feeling she's like a Rocky Road kind of gal. Rocky Road. She seems, yeah, kind of like a little wild. Mm. Rocky Road fits the bill there. I don't. I don't think she's going for any sort of the the fruitier flavors that you get with gelato, like the the closer to like citrusy stuff and that. I think it's very much like an ice cream based one. Rocky Road seems like the the good way to go. Or maybe, you know, she's a classy woman. She might just like classic vanilla. Mmm. Good call. Good call. Yeah. I. I'm. I'm just for reference. If you're keeping track, guys, I'm a chocolate kind of guy. Um. I would be mostly like mint chocolate. That's my second choice, and I love it. Yeah. But we're sidetracking about ice cream. I'm clearly hungry, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was a wonderful chat. I also got a little discussion about casting. It's great they basically got who they wanted, more or less, and, and hearing about Sam Hewen. I know the Sam Hewen fans are listening. Uh, I'm glad he got his time. This might be the closest he ever gets to James Bond, and I'm glad he got it. And speaking of James Bond, really great to hear um, David talk about working with Gary Powell, who's you know, his stunt team has worked on several Bond films now. And uh, yeah, we may hear a little more from Gary Powell in the future on Spy Hearts as teased in the interview. But um, I just thought that was really interesting because the action in this movie, as I said in the interview, is surprisingly great. Uh, it's not something that I expected going in for sure. Yeah, I, I had the benefit of knowing Gary was involved in the film because the 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 thing that you may hear from him, da 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 da, da was recorded a while ago, so, and we spoke about this film. But I didn't expect this sort of level of action from the film. I was genuinely surprised, and his fingerprints are all over it. So it was nice to hear that sort of... They gave him free reign to sort of do his thing on this film. Yeah, because there's a lot of great stunt teams, you know, that I'm sure Gary Powell has worked on movies where they achieved incredible things, and yet when it went through the editing room and what have you... It didn't look so impressive. Mm -hmm. This is not the case with this movie. The movie definitely, I think, respected what he created and it comes across on screen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, David has sort of a, another spy project in the works. Good to hear. More grounded, this one. Close to sort of the 70s thriller aspect I think he's going for there. So hopefully that gets picked up and uh, we can have another appearance of David and Susanna on the show. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I mean, more spy content is great for us and great for all of you. 
Absolutely. And his favorite spy movies were quite interesting because he's probably one of the only people who has not mentioned James Bond. I don't think he ever once uttered the phrase James Bond. And in his top, no. his top spy movies was Mission Impossible Fallout, Three Days of the Condor. Uh, what am I and missing? the Born Supremacy. Yeah. Great lineup of films. I couldn't fault it once. And it's just refreshing to hear someone coming from more than mission background. Something that we might be looking at some point this year. And also, those are two knocklist inductees in Supremacy and Condor. Will Fallout join the knocklist? We'll find out. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, there's plenty more where that came from. We've had quite a few screenwriters on the show so far. You know, from the likes of Wendell Wellman, who wrote the fantastic techno thriller Firefox. Jeff Kane, who co-wrote GoldenEye. Rich Wilkes, who made Triple X. The list goes on. You can find it all in your podcast feeds. But Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we talking about next week? Yes, we are talking about 1952's Five Fingers, starring James Mason. This is one that I'm not that familiar with. It's directed by Joseph Mankiewicz, who was a classic director of Golden Age Hollywood. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Yes, it should be a riot, I'm hoping. I mean, I loved our time with James Mason in The Macintosh Man. Hopefully we get to see someone (laughs) jump off a boat this time. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only thing I remember about The Macintosh Man, I have to say. The burning house in the background. That's what I remember. Ah, yeah, the burning house in the background. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Five Fingers and join us next week. This one is widely available, but it's also up on YouTube if you can't find it. So it is definitely there as well. Uh, And if you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, what gelato flavor do you think Gillian Anderson would eat? Thank you.